We'll open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Those of us who grew up as kids of the 90s watching the sitcom Full House, well, we've all been saddened by the recent news of the death of, of Danny on that show, is the character that he played. The, the actor's name is Bob Saget, and his death was very unexpected. And strangely, not long after, uh, around the same time, uh, rather, right before the death of Bob Saget, we also learned of the death of a famous 99-year-old comedian whose name was Betty White. And Saget and Betty White were friends. And days before Saget died, he took to social media and he was reflecting on the death of his friend, Betty White, and Saget commented on social media, this is what he said, she always said the love of her life was her husband, Alan Ludden, who she lost in 1981. Well, if things work out by Betty's design, in the afterlife, they are reunited. I don't know what happens when we die, but if Betty says that you get to be with the love of your life, then I happily defer to Betty on this. Well, I've got to tell you, when I read this post about the way Bob was reflecting on the death of Betty, my sadness over Bob Saget's death only deepened. Because Betty White, though she is a wonderful person, she really doesn't have the authority to fit the afterlife to her own design. And as I was thinking about that, isn't there for any person a more trusted voice for us to turn to and to listen to when we're grappling with the greatest questions of life? Because we live in a time that people everywhere seem to all be asking the right questions. But it's not enough just to ask the right question. You've also got to know how to discover the right answers to those questions. And when you think about where to find the answers to all of these questions of life, the Gospel of John is a place that you can turn to find all of those questions answered. Each Gospel, as we read them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all are important and they all deal with Jesus and his life and his ministry in a very specific way. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the son of David, the eternal king of the Jews. When you read about Jesus in Mark's gospel, he is God's workman who came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And then when you come to Luke, you read about Jesus in a different way there because Jesus in Luke's gospel is the perfect man, qualifying him to be the only substitute for sinful humanity. And then you come to the gospel of John. And this gospel is unique from the first three. Because in God, John's gospel, Jesus is the heavenly one who clothed himself in humanity to become and to be the self-disclosure of God himself. And the beauty of the gospel of John is made evident even from its opening verse. Won't you read with me how John begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own believed in his name. Or he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When you think about the way that John begins this incredible book, I want you to know that these 18 verses give us this very clear understanding. We can bring it all together in one statement. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of reality and truth. And we encountered this magnificent claim from John's opening verse. And the first words of this gospel, they declare the uncontainable greatness of the Word. As you think about the origin of humanity, the answer to the question, where did I come from? John begins by connecting the Word to creation. And if we could hit the rewind button on history and take it all the way back to the very beginning to the time in which God created the world out of nothing, what you would see was that the Word was there. And nothing in the Bible hints at God being created, and in the very same sense, nothing in the Bible even hints, especially in John's Gospel, of the Word being created. God and the Word have always existed. And there never was a time when the Word was not. And as God existed in eternity past, even before He brought the world into existence through creation, John also tells us that the Word was with God. And in that statement, there is a subtle hint of intimacy. Now, if I were to tell you that last night I spent the evening with my television watching Auburn beat Kentucky, if I were to tell you that, you would understand what I was saying, but you would also think that what I said sounded a bit strange. And you might spend a quiet evening watching your television, 
Or you might spend a quiet evening reading a book. But if you're going to spend a quiet evening in the company of the people that you love, that is when you rightly say that you spent the evening with Allie and the girls. So is the same thing true in our text. Before the universe was created, the Word was with God. And now, in John chapter 1, you see why. The Word and God are made of the same substance because the Word was God. So who exactly then is the Word? Well, we're going to have to wait a bit for that answer. But subtly, we learn in verse 3 of the Word's personhood. The Word is so powerful that he is responsible for the creation of all things great and small. In fact, nothing, it says in verse 3, has been created except for what has happened when the Word created it. But the Word was not some inanimate force. The intelligence that formulated creation, it is all bound up together in a person. And if we were to take a tour along with the word of Noah's ark, after it was fully occupied and at full capacity, what we would listen to the word say was, we would listen and the word would tell us, hey, why don't you look over there at that pangolin over there? I want you to look at that pangolin and notice its impenetrable scales that not even a lion's teeth can penetrate. Do you see that? I made that. I did it for a reason. And then when you look over and you, you, you listen to the word, he would say, oh, and I want you to look over at those magnificent Galapagos finches. Do you notice how I made all of their beaks unique for a reason? I, I did all that. Don't you see it? The reason the word would be able to point you to all of those minute details is because Revelation 4.11 is true. By his will, all that exists all the creatures that we see are created, every detail, by the work of the Word. And after explaining the Word's role as an agent in creation, making all things great and small, John wrote verse 4 to naturally follow. Because after creating the world exhaustively, the Bible says in verse 4 that the Word created life. And he dispensed that life so thoroughly throughout the world that it became the light of the human race. So what do you take away from this knowledge of the Word's uncontainable greatness? Well, as our Creator, the Word knows just what His creation needs. I love the way that Kent Hughes speaks of the Word's power and wisdom. He tells a story of Charles Steinmetz, who was a mechanical genius, who along the way became a close personal friend of the famous Henry Ford. Well, Steinmetz, he could build a motor in his mind. And if that motor broke down, he could visualize then how to fix it. And one day, Ford's assembly line broke down, and the men couldn't figure out how to fix what was wrong with the car's engine. So they made a call to Charles Steinmetz. And after just a few minutes of tinkering 
with the engine. The genius mechanic got that engine to run again, and he fixed the entire assembly line. And when he gave his friend Henry Ford a bill for $10,000, which was a whole lot of money back in those days, Ford then got the bill, and he wrote to his friend Charles Steinmetz, and this is what he said, don't you think that your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? And Steinmetz, he revised the bill, but this is what he did. He wrote on it these words, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. And can I just tell you, if you don't know this to be true, you have a great creator who always knows where to tinker when our life gets broke down. He's the one who knows exactly what to do to get our lives running again. But though the word has never given us any reason to not trust him, any reason to remotely think it okay to doubt him, so many of the world that was created by this agent of creation, the word has turned away from him. And that's what leads us to what we read about in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, because now we have to grapple with the unfathomable rejection of the good. Because woven into John's first chapter are so many of these big questions of life. Questions like what I told you that Bob Saget is dealing with. We're going to find it in John's gospel. What happens after you die? Other questions that we've already seen in the opening verses. Where did we come from? What is the origin of humanity? Those questions are also found. But now in verses 9 through 11, we're going to have to deal with another great question of life. The most difficult dilemma that every single one of us have to face. And this is the question. Why is life filled with so much pain and suffering? Or another way to put the question is this. What has gone wrong? And the answer, according to John's gospel, verses 9 through 11, is clear. The creator, who is the word, who brought his life and his light to the world that he created, when he brought that life and life to the world, the world treated the creator treated the word as it treated the in, as the innkeeper treated Mary and jo Joseph when they went to Bethlehem. Because the, wor the world determined there is no room. There is no room. And here we read of John's first use of the word world in verses 9 through 11. And when you read about world in John's gospel, on very rare occasion, and I say rare occasion, it will be given a neutral overtone. You find that in the very last verse of the gospel. There aren't enough books of the within the world to contain all the works of Jesus. That doesn't speak good or negatively. It just talks of the world in a neutral way. You find that on occasion in John's gospel, but more than not, in fact, overwhelmingly more than not, the word world is never used positively, it's always used negatively. So when John mentions the word world in the gospel, and he does so as we're going to see throughout the book in our study of it with great regularity, 
he is speaking of the created order that is in active rebellion against its maker. And this is the way he uses the word world. It's the world that celebrates this day for being the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade decision, the day that abortion was legalized. Because since that day that it became legal in our culture, a world that was already in an active state of rebellion moved even further away from being a culture of life and hastening its pace and becoming a culture of death. So no wonder John speaks of how the light overcomes the darkness in verse 5 because the darkness is so pervasive in the world today. It's always seeking to destroy the light. But then if you're thinking, you might say, but wait a second, Pastor. Isn't it true that when John writes of God's love in the famous passage, John chapter 3, verse 16, doesn't he write that God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son? Well, this is true. But this is not in any way an endorsement of the world, says D.A. Carson. We stand amazed by God's love in John 3.16, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad, and God loves the world in spite of that fact. This speaks of the immense love of God. So when you read about the world in John's gospel, when John speaks of world, it doesn't even include believers at all. For all who come to faith in John 15, 19 are no longer of this world. The world that God created and declared to be good in Genesis chapter 1 is no longer good. But when the word who is good, the complete picture of goodness, came into the world offering it life and light, the world chose instead to relish in death and in darkness. So John is answering all of these critical questions for us. Where did we come from? We're crafted with love by a part of the Trinity identified in John chapter 1 verse 3 as the Word. What went wrong? The Word offered his creation life and light, but instead image bearers created by God, chose to drift and stumble along in death and in darkness. And this is why there's so much suffering and pain in the world. But God did not leave us in this hopeless estate because the next big question of life is now ready to be addressed as John continues in chapter 1. What then is the answer to all of this? What is the solution? And the answer to this question John now turns, as we're going to read beginning in verse 13, of the undeserved intervention of the God-man. And now we see where the tangible and invisible expression of God is found. The Word who preexisted can now be touched, can now be approached. The one who is perfect and powerful can now, interestingly enough, can even be tempted and can be killed. The one whose glory drew near to his people in the wilderness 
by way of an unbecoming tent called a tabernacle, has now drawn near to his people in an unbecoming body, Isaiah 53, and now the agent of creation dwells, or as it says in the original Greek, literally tabernacles with his creation. We couldn't make our way to him. So the word became flesh, and he came to us. And every instance in the Gospel of John that we're going to read about where we see how the sick are healed, we read about this and understand the light is overcoming the darkness. Every confrontation in which the Word corrects religious error, death is conquered by life. And the glory of God, His very presence, found in the Old Testament in the bright cloud of Sinai, found in the cloud that filled the temple with his glory, is now translated to us in John chapter 1 in words and in tears and in blood and in touch and in laughter. And we can do so much more than Moses who could just gaze at the backside of God's goodness. For he has not come to judge the world, but he has come to save it. And he doesn't stand against the law that was given to Moses because this law was never meant to be an end in itself. All the law of Moses, and then for that matter, all of the Old Testament scriptures anticipate the time when the word would become flesh and grace and truth would be fulfilled. And then finally we come to chapter 1, verse 17. Finally, John opens the curtains. The preexistent Word, who is a part of the Godhead, the omnipotent agent of creation who created all things. Outside of him, nothing has been created. The one who lavishes his love upon all of creation, even though creation has rejected him, This Savior comes into this rebellious world, not to judge it, but to save it. And John finally identifies the identity of the word of this loving Savior in verse 17. He is the one who embodies reality and truth. He is Jesus. And while no one has ever seen God, it said in verse 1 in the beginning, according to verse 18, the Christ, has always been at the Father's side, and now he has come to us, and he has made the Father known. But if you're following close with me this morning, you may have noticed the omission of the text that I have not yet addressed in chapter 1. I didn't speak of the verses in chapter 1, 6 through 8, because I wanted to save those verses for the end. Because verses 6 through 8 tells us that there was a man sent from God. His name was John. Not John, the beloved disciple, but John that we affectionately know as the baptizer. John the Baptist. That's why you're in the most biblical church right here. I'm just kidding. But there's a man in verses 6 through 8 whose name was John. And this man, John, this 
forerunner to Jesus was given this consuming mission. He is to go into the world as a witness and give witness as to the light. And he was wonderful, but we learn in verses 7 and 8 that he was not the light himself. John's job was to tell the world that the light had finally come. And what an unusual message. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that you have come over to my house for dinner. We have opened the door. And as you walk into my house, I greet you. I give you a knuckle bump because it is COVID, maybe, if you don't want to hug. I ask you if I can hug you. And then afterwards, I feel compelled to announce to you, now, you may not realize this, but I have hit the light switch, and now there is light in the room. And you're looking at me saying, how long do I have to be here? And the oddity of my greeting to you and the foyer of my house is no different than the oddity of this man's message in verse 6, whose name was John. Because as we have read all of the wonderful truth of John chapter 1, it brings us to one last question. Who has to be told the obvious, that the light is here? That the light has been turned on. And the ones who have to be told this truth are those who are blind. So I've shared with you in the spirit of John the Baptist that the, if you open up John's gospel, you learn of the greatness of the word. You learn of the unfathomable rejection of the ultimate good. And while it would have been fitting for the good to have just walked away after being rejected because there was no room for him in his creation that he created, you also learned that he did not do that. You learned of the intervention of the God-man. The curtain has been opened up. Who is this one who gives us hope? who answers all of the greatest questions of life, who embodies truth and reality. Who is it? We've learned it is Jesus. So I have joined with John the Baptist in announcing to you this morning that the light is shining. But has it been necessary for you to be told? The whole reason we have this book purpose of it all is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in his name. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes, because if you're here in the blindness of never understanding the fullness of Christ, the full embodiment of life and hope and truth, the one who came to us to let us know who God is in such a remarkable way, his dwelling here with us. If you've never understood the Savior, won't today be the day that you have your blindness lifted just as Jesus miraculously makes the blind to see?
to understand that you are a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're a good person who's doing nice things for people around. If we have broken one part of God's law, we've broken it all. And the consequence of that rebellion against God is utter separation from the Lord. But Jesus came to us even in the state of our rebellion. And if you will understand that he lived a perfect life that you could not live to go to a cross and die a death that we deserve to die, was raised from the death, if you will believe in him and confess with him that he's your, he's your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then your blindness can be lifted. Sight can be given. You can live the rest of your days for his glory. But for all of us here, how much we need to be reminded the all-consuming greatness of Christ can be trusted. We have nothing to fear. He can tinker anytime he chooses. And instead of rejecting him and moving away from him, we repent and we run to Christ. And we live our lives thankful for the intervention of Jesus. This should make all of us worship this morning. Oh God, thank you so much for your truth. If there's anyone here today that needs a relationship with you, that their blindness has been miraculously turned into now that they can see, oh God, I pray that today will be the day that they transfer all their hope and trust in you and publicly profess that you're their Lord. For all of us here today, may we marvel at the greatness of the significance of Jesus. May your worship be the theme of our lives. Oh God, show us how to live each day for you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.